I felt beaten up. I feel beaten up by all religions, frankly. You know, particularly about LGBT stuff. Should the Muslims be allowed to pray on the football field? Of course. Absolutely. Anybody should be allowed to. This is the United States of America. The Village Square, a nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives who believe that disagreement and dialogue make for a good conversation, a good country, and a good time. At the Village Square, we talk about politics, religion, and race. You know, the topics your mom taught you never to discuss in polite company. Listen, at the Village Square, we make pigs fly. Welcome to Village Squarecast. This is Vanessa Rouse. Thank you for joining us for Created Equal and Breathing Free where we discuss our founding ideals of equality and freedom, and we consider the tension that often exists between these ideals. This program is designed to make you ponder big questions like, have we gone too far with ensuring equality or not far enough? And does your freedom threaten my equality or does my equality limit your freedom? We are excited to present this program in partnership with Florida Humanities as part of the Created Equal and Breathing Free podcast series. You might notice it's also the same name of this particular episode. Just a quick warning that there's a little bit of salty language in this program. Unusual for us, I know, but hey, we're authentic. So let's get on with it. I'm going to turn it over to Liz Joyner, Village Square's president and founder, to get things started. I'm Liz Joyner. Tonight's discussion is on issues that are very close to all of our hearts, and we do not, we do not agree with each other. So this is a challenging conversation we're going to have tonight. We want it to be real, but we also want it to be respectful and generous. So, in To Kill a Mockingbird, Harper Lee wrote, people generally see what they look for and hear what they listen for. Tonight, we'd like to invite you to look for the genuine humanity in the person on the panel that you tend to disagree with. We think it's actually going to be really easy to find because we brought two really amazing people to you this evening for you to get to know. And now, it's my honor to introduce our moderator for the evening, Bill Maddox of the Village Square Board of Directors, and our panelists, Father Tim Holita of Blessed Sacrament Catholic Church, and Terry Galloway of Mickey Faust Club Academy for the Really Dramatic Arts. So my name is Bill Maddox, and I'm a member of the Board of Directors for the Village Square, and it's my pleasure to uh, welcome you, as others have, to tonight's really splendid conversation. I, I have been so looking forward to this evening, and I think you all are going to enjoy it um, as much as I am. Let me give you a little sense of where we're going tonight so that you'll have some context. I'm going to spend the first, oh, third of the evening, perhaps, giving you an opportunity to get to know these two people, because I think you'll find them fascinating. I think you'll find it interesting that they have some important differences, but also um, some 
curious uh, similarities, one of which I think Liz has probably already pointed out to you, at least in the publicity for tonight's event, which is that both of them often enjoy wearing black, uh, as we see. (laughs) You gave us a little splash of purple tonight, which is great. Then after we spend a little bit of time getting to know them, we're going to probably get into some of the controversies that many of you are familiar with that we'd like for them to help guide us through. Liz has given you a brief introduction to each of these individuals. I want them to uh, give us a fuller introduction in just a minute. But one thing, Liz, if I could have you help me with, one of the things that we noticed about Terry in her bio that's really interesting, uh, she is, as, as Liz mentioned, the head of the Mickey Faust Club and a prolific writer, director, uh, actor and one of her written works is out all night and lost my shoes right so we want to be sure you don't lose your shoes tonight so liz has made a way i have shoes in father tim's size and i have shoes in terry's size Now, you'll notice that Liz has given each the opposite size, and we won't ask you to necessarily put them on, although if you want, you can. And you'll get to go home with the size that's actually yours. But one of the things that I think we want to illustrate here is that part of our function tonight is not to win people to our side necessarily, but to promote greater understanding, to, in a certain sense, put ourselves in the shoes of another. And so we'll do that throughout the evening. We'll invite you to do that with us. And I just so appreciate each of them for wanting to take part in this. This is a very difficult at times, a very delicate set of topics. I mean, we're talking tonight about essentially two of my really favorite topics in all the world, sex and religion. But these are these are topics about which many of us disagree. And so one of the things that I want you to understand and that I have told them is that this is not a time for me to play journalist and to think of gotcha questions that can put them on the spot. And to illustrate that, I have get-out-of-jail-free cards to give to each of you. And if at any point tonight I ask a question that you just simply don't want to answer, you don't want to go there, you haven't thought about it, it's not a question that you feel comfortable dealing with, feel free to play your get-out-of-jail card, because this is not a time for us to put you on the spot or to make you feel uncomfortable. We want to learn from you and to enjoy what you can help us with. I have reserved one of these cards for myself, because I can assure you that at some point tonight, I'm going to say something that I don't mean to say that's going to be politically incorrect or is going to step on someone's toes, not because I want to, but because that's invariably what happens when we get into some of these kind of conversations. So I'll feel free to play this myself if and when I get myself in trouble. All right, enough of all the preliminaries. Let's get into things. And what I want to first hear from you is to give us a little sense of who you are, how you got to where you are. And what I'm, what I'm particularly interested in here in a brief introduction, tell us the one or two things about you that you most want people to know about you that, that are, that are kind of, if, if people don't know anything else about you, you would want them to know that you are this. We'll, we'll let Father Tim go first. Well, good evening, everybody. Thank you for being here. 
My name is Father Tim Holida. I grew up in uh, the Orlando area, uh, Seminole County, and came here to Tallahassee to go to college at FSU. Go Seminoles. Any Seminole fans in here? <laughs> yeah? Okay, very good. They can clap for that, right, Liz? Is that right? Um, uh, while I was here, I, I, became a, a, I became a Catholic, actually. I was baptized when I was 19 years old. I was involved in the Catholic Student Union, uh, which is not the original plan when I came here. I was wanted to go into politics, actually, and ended up getting derailed by uh, coming to the church, deciding not to do that. No offense to our politicians in the crowd. <laughs> Went to the seminary in Boynton Beach, Florida, at St. Vincent de Paul, and also one year in Miami, and I've been ordained for about four and a half years. I was ordained in July of 2011. I've been a Blessed Sacrament ever since, and see, one or two things I'd like people to know. Um, well, I became a priest because I, I genuinely wanted to serve God, and I care about people, and I, I tried to uh, meet people where they're at as best as I can, and I don't have any agendas or anything. I want the best for people, and I think the second thing is that I genuinely think that most people have the same feeling. I think most people are good on the inside and really do want the the good. I, I've never really met anybody who's evil. I meet people who are, all of us, I think at times are confused or misdirected or something, but genuinely, we're all attracted to the good, and we're all attracted to truth and goodness and beauty. Karen? Uh, I, I'm Terry Galloway, and I was born in uh, Stuttgart, Germany, and I grew up in Berlin. My father was American military. He was counterintelligence. Then I spent the rest of my childhood in Texas, in Austin, Texas. And I moved here because my sweetie got a job at Florida State University back in 1986, something like that. Okay, a couple of things I want you to know. I, I'm deaf. My mother was given an, an antibiotic when she was six months pregnant with me. They knew it would do harm to the fetus, but they gave it to her anyway. I used to blame them, you know, but it was either that or she was going to die. So they gave it to her, and they took a chance, and then I was born. And I had hallucinations growing up, and I lost my hearing. And by the time I was nine, I was profoundly deaf. But there's another thing to tell you. Uh, about three and a half years ago, I got a cochlear implant. And you want to talk about miracles. Uh, it was wonderful. And when they turned it on, I went crazy because your brain doesn't understand what it's hearing. And the audiologist, when I was going, I can't do this, I can't do this, there was a little bell, like this bell, and she went, ding! And my being went, <gasps> because it was the most beautiful sound I had ever heard in my life. And ever since then, I've been in love with hearing. And now I have a second one. I love that. Okay. Uh, take that! <laughs> I thought we weren't supposed to applaud for stuff like that, isn't it? <laughs> there are only two things other. Okay. I love theater, and I, I, I love theater all my life because my family's very theatrical. But when I was a kid, and I, I had a, a lateral lisp, I had deaf speak. But when I was, I was in high school, and I still wanted to go and study theater because what's the wrong with studying theater? So I go in to be counseled, and the counselor who's been giving my friends all of these things, go to Princeton, go to Yale, go to the University of Texas. I went in, and he gave me a brochure that read, errors and all, factory work, make good job for death. I walked out of there thinking, screw you. And no, really, really. And, and from then on, I was going to do theater, and I was going to make other people who had been told no, 
I was going to get them involved in theater. And that's, that's been the big driving factor of my life. All right, so all of us here in this room are members of various tribes and multiple tribes, whether we're Floridians or, you know, in my case, I'm, I'm of the tribe of, of Floridians, male, you know, on and on the list. Here's what I'm interested in knowing. Of all the tribes that you're a part of, which one or two would you say is most important to you? No, I'd like to hear from you first on this. Um, uh, well, tribes, okay, the creative tribe. You know, I, I identify with people who approach life with a great creativity. The tribe that has a sense of humor. You know, anybody who's got a sense of humor—that's my buddy. And um, the drinking tribe, because I like a good drink. <laughs> Why not? You know, so those are those are some of the tribes. You know, those are some of the tribes. Very good. Well, I have to agree with Terry. Uh, being a, one great thing about being Catholic is that uh, we drink. So I'm in the drinking tribe too. So. <laughs> In fact, I was a little concerned. Right? I hadn't eaten since breakfast, and so I was having a glass of wine. And I thought this this isn't going to be good. I better eat something, or we're going to have a problem. We're going to have a drinking game tonight. Every time that they uh, pat hands, drink up. Yeah. Go, go ahead. So I'm with, I'm with Terry on that one. I I have never really thought about that. I mean, it, the obvious answer would be, oh, we're all we're all the same. We're all humans, but we're, you know, there's differences obviously in, in what we associate with, but. That's something I am, I am proud of. I mean, the only sticker I have on my truck is the United States Marine Corps, and I served in the military when I was in college. And, and what reason I'm proud of that, I mean, it's part of my personality. I have, I'll share this, I have two tattoos. I have one of the Marine Corps and one of, of Jesus and Mary, a cross and an M. And because when I was in middle school, I think we took some exam that told us what kind of job we would go into. And I remember very clearly, I was surprised by this, but it said clergy, which I didn't go to church at the time. It, police, uh, military, uh, politics, some kind of a civil service sort of thing. So I think part of me, and I've met other people in the military or people in law enforcement or people in politics or people in the clergy, uh, there is a sort of uh, mentality or certain personality, I think, that, that leads people to want to wanna give their life or sacrifice in that way for others. So, so I'm happy to be associated with that. Great. I'm curious, on in your case, Terry, you often describe the Mickey Faust Club as a kind of vanguard of Tallahassee's weird community. Help us understand what you mean by that. I'm also really curious to have you help us understand the title of your memoir, Mean Little Deaf Queer. Help us understand especially what you mean by mean in that. So weird and mean. (laughs) Weird and mean, okay. Well, actually by weird, I I think I just mean the people who are drawn to Faust are usually people who, like me, were told no at some junction or other. Okay, there are a lot of LGBT people there, a lot of queers there. You know, uh, oh wait, that's LGBT. <laughs> LGBT, because the initials go on forever. A lot of people with disabilities there. A lot of interracial couples, uh, uh, transgender, trans, transsexual, just a lot of different kinds of people who go there, and they come there because I think it's one of the few places in Tallahassee that they're safe. So we have people who come in there, and some of the stories they tell about how mean people were to them, and I'm not talking about mean in the term that I use it in my book, and I'll talk to you about that later. I'm talking about just mean, 
you know, just homophobic and racist and, and snitty and snobby. And it's everything I hate, everything I hate. And they fled that. And they go there. And so you have people, you know, who, okay, so we have a guy, he, he likes to dress up in women's clothes. He's like there forever. He was a sea captain, you know, for 10 years, he and his wife, they went on their boat all around the world. And then he just, and he had a beard down to here and he looked the manly man. And then he discovered, no, I have a feminine side and I want to see what it's like. His wife was just so upset. She said, I don't even know you. So they go to Faust. And everybody in Faust, we make all the straight guys wear dresses just to get it over with, you know? And so, you know, just get up there and play. You can play a woman. We can play men. Come on. We can play creatures. You can play anything. And nobody batted an eye. And she was so grateful. She wanted to love her husband, but she simply didn't understand this and thought it was so terrible. Well, it, not in Faust. You know, not in Faust. Okay, weird, uh, that weird dickhead that takes care of weird, I think. You know? yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but you use the term weird in a good sense. You're, well, I mean, you wear it. I use weird in a, ter- in a good sense, and also in the sense that it shakes you up. You know, it gets you out of your complacency. My mother used to love anything that was odd or different. She didn't hate it. She didn't fear it. She was fascinated by it. Okay. And that's why I love my mom. Yeah, yeah. And All right, help us know. You, you're not really a mean person. Yeah, I am. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I am. I'm really mean. I hate bullies. And anytime I've ever seen a bully, I'll stand up and I'll call him to be a bully, and I won't take it. If somebody's picking on me or picking on people that I know are good people, I will not take it. And I can be really mean, and you need to be mean. And you need to put those people in their places and say, no, I'm mean in that regard. And then I was mean when I was little because it was a defense mechanism. Because everybody was, if you're, if you're a, a deaf kid, you know, you're going to get picked on. And if you're around other disabled kids, you're going to see them get picked on. And what's your defense? You're a kid. And the adults aren't watching this. They think you're playing happily. So you get mean. So that, that's how I was mean as a kid. Yeah. yeah. It was you, a defense thing, you know. Tough. Yeah. Tough skin. Boy, you've conjured something. <laughs> Father, help us. Give it. Give us. Help, a... help you. <laughs> Good luck, Bill. <laughs> Father, I've sinned. Um, help us. Help us understand misconceptions about the various about your primary tribes. Help us understand. What you would say are misconceptions that one has about, especially priests, not just about Catholics generally, but perhaps especially those of you who well, are in full-time ministry. There's plenty of misperceptions about the Catholic faith, plenty. Uh, amongst uh, other Christian groups, other mainstream Protestant groups or non-Catholic groups, many misconceptions about that. And priests especially, of course, you all, I'm sure you all have heard of the, the scandals that were in the news quite a bit about 13 years ago or so and still in the news somewhat. Um, so, of course, you get you know, people attached to those kind of prejudice or stereotypes, or they look at you differently uh, as a priest. And I know, I, I wonder sometimes when I'm at people's homes or families, I, I get nervous, okay, when their kids come over and, and crawl over me or whatever. And, you know, I get nervous. I wonder if the parents are wondering, you know, keeping an eye on me. And I, and I wouldn't blame them because they're parents and they love their children. Um, so that's something that's unfortunately I have to deal with as a priest. 
But I think more importantly, the things that can be kind of hurtful are, are assumptions that because of our beliefs, our religious beliefs, and oftentimes that are misunderstood. Because let's face it, most people in this culture aren't reading a lot of books about what Pope Benedict actually said or what Pope Francis actually said or John Paul II. Most people are just hearing what they hear from Fox News or CNN or MSNBC. But to be labeled as somebody who hates people, to be labeled or assumed that I'm a bigot or a homophobe or something like that is not at all um, who I am as a person. Or to be lumped into groups of people who, who are uh, people who hate, perhaps, or something, uh, just because of uh, being a priest or being, being a priest of Jesus Christ, who I think everybody would agree, whether you, uh, whatever you believe about Jesus, is not a person in history normally depicted as someone who hated. Um, and that's who I think we try our best uh, and fail often, I will say, to emulate Jesus to the best of our ability. And so that's, that's a misconception I think people have, is lumping us into these sort of divisive terms and labels when that's the furthest thing from the truth. I mean, I give my life day and night to serving people. Middle of the night, homeless people, people who aren't of my faith, everybody. And so to be to be called that because of, you know, believing in something is, is you know, it's, it's offensive, you know, whatever. But we, hey, this is life. We deal with it. I want to say something about, you know, about what you were saying, about uh, feeling funny about going into families now that all of this whole thing, the pedophile thing. I want to tell you, I know exactly what you mean, because there was a, a council, was it a city council or a, a county, a, a county thing that was about the, uh, what was human, it? Human rights ordinance. Yeah, the human rights thing. And so this is before I got my cochlear. So I'm getting all of this. Um, Donna's typing out all of this for me, what's being said. And one of the guys who will remain nameless, but he's not in this room, okay? <laughs> but one of the, one of the guys compared the people who are up there testifying, families, or, you know, with their kids, wonderful people, people I knew, me, comparing all of us to pedophiles. And I, I didn't hear this. Then I read it. And when I read it, I was, first of all, I was hurt. You know, I don't, I don't want kids. I never like kids. I, but I like them. I mean, I see them. They're really nice. Little, they're nice creatures. You know, I don't, but you know, I don't, I never wanted them. It never occurred to me, but there were families and there, there, these kids are hearing their parents being compared to pedophiles. I was so angry. I was so angry. I, I got ushered out. I was so angry. You know, and, and I understand, and it's a goddamn shame. I'm really sorry. It's interesting to me that both of you are in the world of, in your own various and very different ways, in the, in, in the world of telling stories. But I, I'm interested in hearing from both of you on this, because you hold leadership positions in that storytelling world, but you're often dealing with scripts that someone else may have written. And I'm curious to know... How you, especially as an author, deal with with kind of pride of authorship sorts of questions, and how important is it to you when someone goes to act out one of your plays for them to follow the script that you've written? And how important is it when you go to, to direct for actors or actresses to follow the director's instructions that you're giving? Are you, are you referring to the text as a living document? Is that what you're asking? Whether I think it's a dead thing that's, that can't change or a text that, that can be diddled with? I, I guess what I'm, I, yeah, I'm wrestling with all, all of that because it seems to me that everybody in the creative arts feels this kind of tension where you can't just have a group of actors all going off in their own directions. There has to be someone that brings them back to 
some common story that we're trying to tell, mm. whether you may like this or not. Mm. And, and there does need, does there not, to be some faithfulness to the text that the playwright has, has composed. So, so I guess I'm, I guess it's, it's, it's a question of kind of the degree to which you enjoy working in kind of scripted theater versus improv, if you will, and how much leeway in your own personal life do you want in that sense? Okay. I know, I know the script you're going to talk about. <laughs> a text. I know this. I think I do. The living document, I think. But, <laughs> but, um, uh, there are three ways I can answer this because I, I, I deal with different kinds of text. Okay. And Mickey Faust, the people in the community write their own things. And it's very collective because we have a lot of people who don't know how to write, but they have ideas or they have things they want to say. And what we do is that we, we give each other the benefit of our knowledge and we act as an audience. And so when they're doing these scripts, writing them down, they have a lot of feedback. When it's on stage, sometimes the actors say, this doesn't work right. It's wonderfully written, but it doesn't work as a performance. Mm -hmm. And so we allow them to, to do this. In my own work, I, uh, I do one person's show, so I don't have to worry. The oh. actor can do what she wants. Yeah. <laughs> and I can do it. Uh, I write a musical called The Ugly Girl, a musical tragedy in burlesque. And I work with six women with, who are in the UK who are disability activists. And they helped me devise a script that they felt could take them somewhere. And within that, that I'm not a stickler for that. I believe if someone feels compelled or moved or called to take something in a different direction, I'm willing. And I'm willing. I feel the same way about Shakespeare. I was a um, associate director for the Shakespeare at Windell program. I go back periodically. I adore Shakespeare. It's a living document. It was changed by a lot of people. No one knows how many people had to go with what we now see as this document. But one of the things that happens when you perform, it is changed yet again, and you make it re you make it come alive again. So I have I have a very fluid and changeable relationship with that about what it can do. Yeah, you know that. Sorry, I didn't mean to go on, but that no, that's good. It's excellent. Give me a sense of how you deal with text and with script and with scripture in your in your world and the degree to which you feel at liberty to reinterpret to reimagine or to what extent you feel responsibility to follow someone else's guidance on these things i, I guess in i guess in many ways what i'm asking is you, as a priest do you think of yourself more as a leader or as a follower well, I think in our theology and the way we look at things as a priest is that um, any authority that I have or any anything that I do as a priest, I derive that from another authority. I derive that from my bishop. So I serve at his pleasure. Um, and then actually my pastor, if you want to get even closer, my pastor is appointed by my bishop and he's really, I represent him. My official title is parochial vicar, which means that I act in his authority when he's not around or something like that at his permission. So... There's that kind of element there, um, but I think maybe which more of what you're getting to with Scripture is, as a priest, I believe in the authority of the church, and authority is. Well, a lot of us, if we ask, if I asked the audience, if I said, "Tell me what you think authority is," 
most people that I've found when I've done this, they always normally say power. But it's not just power. Because if somebody was to steal something from me, and I decided I'm stronger than them, that I'm going to bind them and, and cut off their hand, I might have the power to do this, but I don't have the authority to do this. And so authority has something to do with legitimacy. Now, as a priest, I don't have the authority to just interpret or make up what the Christian faith is. There's somebody else who's done that, and I'm a, I'm a believer in that authority. And so my priesthood of being ordained by my bishop is not, as we say, a license for private practice. Okay? <laughs> I would be doing you a disservice if you were a Catholic and you came to my church and I just was making stuff up or guessing. And I sometimes do speculate on things, and there's nothing wrong with that, and I have the freedom to, but I always let people know that this is not exactly maybe church teaching, but this is kind of what I kind of think about this or something along those lines. But I don't have the freedom to just make stuff up, and people don't come to my church to hear my opinions. Everybody has opinions. People come to my church because they believe that there's something here that's true and valid and legitimate, and that's why they come. Um, so that being said, the same thing with Scripture. The way the church views Scripture is these were words that were written a very long time ago. Some of them very, very, very long time ago. Some of them not as long and, and so on. What did these words mean? And what do these scriptures mean? What is, if Jesus is revelation of God, for example, if this is God's communication to you and communication to me, I don't think he would just leave it up to guesswork what he meant. He would have to find a way that myself now in 2016 could access this message that he had for me. And I believe that's the church. That's what we believe as Catholics. That's why we have this authority and so on. But I do believe there's a way to access what the scripture means without guessing. One of those ways we can go back and look at what did the church believe or what did people believe in those times and how did they interpret it and how did they understand it and how did they live it. And that's the kind of method that we would go by. But this is a difficulty with any text. I think whether it's theater, what did the author, what's the author's interpretation? What did they intend for it? And in some cases, I think in theater, we're more free and more liberal to change or adapt it to our creative means. And I think in some things, matters of religion, in my opinion, at least, we're not so free. Um, God didn't say, hey, make it up. I mean, at least I don't remember that anywhere in, in any religion. So, Except, you know what, this is interesting. I, I love Harold Bloom, and he wrote a thing about Shakespeare because I adore Shakespeare. And I actually talk about Shakespeare as having called myself into being because of that language. Now, and I get this, and I think that there are parallels with the Bible, because Harold Bloom is talking about the creation of conscience and the creation of, of a different, of, of the modern entity through Shakespeare. And so there is a text, but so many people go, and there is a meaning in that text, whether that meaning is always what was intended. We, how do we know? Well, we know it by performing it. We, or we discover it by performing it. But there are many different performances and many different interpretations. And that's why I keep thinking, how is it that the Bible can't have, because it seems to me, and you know, I don't know anything about the Bible. I, I read about, I read the one page of what Jesus said. You know, that was about it. And I read Revelations and it scared me too much. You know, and so it's I, a I, scary I, book. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. It scares me. It's kind of weird. I don't really understand yeah, it sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it scared me because I didn't want my mother, I didn't want my mother's family condemning my mother to have something like that. You know, it scared me for my, for my mother. To me, it doesn't mean a damn thing, but, you know, but I do get, do you not think that the Bible is, is a living text? That it, that it changes as we change? I think it, it is and it isn't. So when I'm preaching, for example, 
if I'm using, I'm, I have a lectionary. There's a schedule of readings. So I look at what the readings are this weekend, which is nice. I don't have to try to figure that out. It's there for me. The, the problem is the flip side is you don't just get to pick either. And sometimes maybe you want to talk about something. Uh, but I try to take that gospel reading or whatever I'm preaching on. And I try to apply it to my own life, right? What does this mean to me? Now, did the gospel writer, John, did he, was he thinking of me when he wrote? I don't think so, right? Of course, you know, or about me on my boat fishing, right? Or eating eggs or something, whatever I come up with. But however this fits into my, to my day-to-day life. And I think in that way, it's a living text. And I think that the meaning can expand. But I do think there is a certain, again, content of faith is the word that we use. That there's, this is what it means to be a Christian, right? This is what you believe. If you believe these things, then you're a Christian. And, I, and, I, and those are what we call dogmas. And it has a very negative connotation, I know, with people. But that's all it really means, is that if you're going to be a Christian, the early church had to decide, okay, what does it mean to be Christian? You know, to believe these things is what it is to be a Christian. Um, you cannot believe these things and still call yourself that. It's more of a, a way of labeling it. So I think in those things, uh, those don't change. I don't we might understand them in a new way or understand them in a deeper way. Um, but they're not living in the same way, I think, as, as literature can be. And I understand what you're talking about. There's, there's a new, every time we come to a text, we bring our own horizons, and they meld with the authors. And you can't perform the same play repeatedly, because it's always a different audience, and the people performing it are always different. Mm. So I think I understand what you're saying. And yeah. I think that could apply on some level to our faith, but there are at least some concrete things that are not changeable in that way. Yeah. Yeah, I, I want to get back to your to the questions at the outset, and then we'll shift into kind of looking at some of these uh, current controversies. But I, I'm interested in this question, uh, hearing you respond here. When you think about those things that most define you, okay, is it possible? Do you think for one to enjoy a friendship, not not just merely tolerate someone who believes differently, but to enjoy a genuine friendship? with someone who rejects those things that are most central to your identity? Is it possible for you to enjoy genuine friendship with someone who thinks that the Catholic Church is a bunch of crock? Yes. Is it possible for you to enjoy friendship with someone who rejects gay marriage or other important ideals to the LGBT community? Okay, okay. Behind those ideals are lives lived. And so the same way I could not listen to someone call me or my friends pedophiles because we were gay, I would find it very, very difficult to enjoy a real, profound, understanding friendship with anyone who could not see beyond this rhetoric, which is what it is, to what the truth is. You know, because... You don't but get but it. Does, does seeing beyond require one to embrace? And so let me give you an example. If my, if my son were to come home tonight and to say, Dad, I've been looking into Scientology, and I've come to the conclusion that I want to be a Scientologist, am I obligated to embrace those beliefs in order to love my son, or can I continue to love my son and to see past beliefs that are now that are now really important to him but that I don't share. Yeah, but there are assumed beliefs and there are there's self-knowledge. So if you're talking about assumed beliefs, you're talking about rituals, you're talking about patterns, you're talking about habits. If you're talking about self-knowledge, you're that's something different. 
And so if, if your son were to come and into you, and it's not Scientology, because that's, you know, that's something you read and you, you get, you know, it's like saying, I want to be a ballerina, you know, or something, you know, I mean, it's just, but no, I didn't even think that. I, I, the Scientology is pretty creepy, but, uh, you know, and so is Tom Cruise. But I, <laughs> but if your son were to come in and say, Dad, I love men, you know, how, and it's not, because it's not, that's not assumed, that's discovered. Okay. So, uh, so I'd have to make a, I'd have to make a thing here because it's, if someone assumes a belief of Nazism and by saying, uh, gays are evil and gays should be killed and gays should be necklaced, how can I possibly friend, be friends with right. someone like that? And, and so my question here was not, should one be friends with all who might object to LGBT ideals? Or for that matter, should one be obligated to befriend all anti-Catholics because there would be some that would engage in mean, vicious, ugly sorts of uh, uh, violence. Yeah, exactly. But well, I but, think. I- but, but would help me here? Would there not be at least some? Please tell me that there are some outside the Catholic faith with whom you would say, "Yeah, I can enjoy that guy. Not just tolerate him. Not just." hang out with him, but really enjoy a genuine, deep friendship, even though he doesn't share my Catholic faith. Absolutely. And I have plenty of friends like that. And actually, my, my colleagues here, Father Matthew Bush, he has many friends who are very different. They're not priests, that's for sure. In fact, I don't know, Comron, I've met Comron, <laughs> but I know he's done it. I don't think, Comron, are you Catholic? Uh, so you can right there, and he, Father Matthew invited him. Uh, so I have plenty of friends, and, and here's the reason why. Well, for, let's begin with this. I don't, when I see Terry, I don't, the, the first thing I don't think is she's gay. Terry is a lot more than how she feels about men or women in a sexual way. I think that's one of the problems in our culture is defining people solely by that. I'm a little bit more, I'd like to think that I'm a little bit more and that you're a little bit more about what arouses you sexually. Okay? I think that we're a little bit more valuable than just that. Is that an element of who we are? Sure. Can it play a major role in who we are and how we live? Absolutely. Is that all we are? No, like fundamentally that Terry and myself, you, Bill, and anybody in here is a human being and we're all searching for truth. And again, like I said at the beginning, that we're looking for for goodness. We want the good. Everybody, why do we participate in these things, right? Why do we have politicians and parties and movements and activists? Why are we interested? Because we're not totally self-enclosed. We want the good for our society, for our brothers and sisters. And so I can be friends with anybody who shares that. Now, somebody like Islamic State, they're probably not going to be friends with me, right? I'm going to have to watch out if they're around me, okay? And, so, and, and I think that's what Terry's trying to say. If there's somebody out there whose beliefs make them automatically violent or opposition to us, I think it's impossible to be friends with them. Being friends requires at least a certain level of openness to the other. Yeah, because I, I was thinking, you know, that's why, because I'm not trying to go after the Catholic Church, but sometimes I feel that the Catholic Church is trying to come after me. And, and that's one of the reasons I was having antagonism towards the church, not because of what it is or what it represents, but because of, I felt beaten up. I feel beaten up by all religions, frankly, you know, particularly about LGBT stuff. You know, I, I see this, that Ted Cruz and his father could even share a stage with that minister who is responsible for the deaths in Nigeria of homosexuals and a law that says that homosexuals must be killed? And if he could even share a stage with someone like that? 
How can you be friends with even people who even would support or try to excuse that? How could you? Because that means you harm. That means you harm. And you don't mean me harm, and I don't mean you harm. No. The, I, I have the unfortunate role of having to ask questions that I really don't want to ask or wish I didn't have to ask, but eh, we're here. It's a panel. It's supposed to be interesting. So I'm curious to know this. Is there, is there any two, is there any coupling of two consenting adults sexually which you would object to? Consenting adults? With consenting adults. No. You know what I think? Anybody who lays a hand on a child, kill them right now. You know, I just think. Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, this no. is actually part so of the reason I wanted to that's ask. That's the this. only thing. That's the only thing. And also, okay. that goes for animals because animals can't give you consent. You know, you know, right. you know, so no. So what are you talking about? Anything that two adults would do? When you were talking about pedophilia, this kind of came to mind because obviously I think we would all agree there's a problem here. What would you say if, and I realize this is bizarre and this is kind of kooky stuff, but okay. Um, I need another what, drink. <laughs> what, what would you say if an adult child wanted to marry his mother or his father? Would there be any reason in your mind why that would be objectionable? Well, their children would probably be no adult creepy. children. I mean, this is not this is now a consenting adult. This isn't a pedophile kind of situation. Well, well, you know what? I I have no idea because that's so far out of yeah. my realm. But I'd have to say I'd want to talk to the mother and I'd want to talk to the kid before I'd ever say that. How, how can you say that? I I don't have any idea. You know, I have no idea. I have no experience with that. But. But I absolutely refuse to have a knee-jerk mean reaction. Right. I just won't do it. No, I, I, I really appreciate your reminder that, and, and Father Tim's reminder that we see past people, we see them as human beings. The only reason I ask that kind of bizarre example is just that some people have argued that, that the objections to same-sex marriage are similar to those to same-kin marriage. And so that was why I was kind of curious. I, you, know, you know, I, look, do you look. really believe that? Do you really believe that? I mean, I, I, I don't because one, I think anytime you have parental roles or you have familial roles, you have a power play. You have power plays going on that we don't even understand. Right. And so, you know, so I think that, yeah, I feel viscerally how objectionable that is. I read that, didn't you read that thing about the, the two, the two siblings who had been adopted by different families? They meet up, they fall in love, and then they find out they're siblings. Right. You know, they've already had sex. They've already kind of embarked on the road to love. And so what are they supposed to do? They, they were, they went into that being innocent. What you're talking about is something not so innocent, you know, and, and is kind of, I, I find it personally a little morally repugnant because I think advantage was taken somehow. Yeah. You know, advantage was Fair. taken. Good. I, okay. So what I want to now do is to kind of go through a litany of news items and get your reaction to some of these. One that can we, comes. Can to we mind. talk a little bit more about the issue you just brought up? Is that okay, or you want to move uh, we, on? Let's return to that. Okay, okay. we'll come back and and, and we, you'll certainly have opportunity to comment on this. But I'm interested in getting your uh, reaction to this incident. Recently, last fall in Washington State, there was a high school coach who was removed from his position because after every football game, he would go out onto the field and pray on the field with some of the players who were high school students. 
In your mind, is this something that was a misuse of his religious authority or his authority as a coach and kind of the involvement of religion in a public school, high school football team? Or is this the kind of thing that we ought to um, permit and perhaps even encourage? Well, this is a complicated answer. It's a complicated question, but I'll try to answer it in the most concise way possible. Let me, and, I, and it actually does tie into what we were just talking about. In my class in philosophy, I asked the kids after we had kind of, of shaken each other up with our beliefs and so on and figured out, maybe these kids kind of realized maybe they didn't really know why they believed what they believed. I asked them, um, why did, did they believe that it was okay for siblings to get married or did they believe it was okay for, uh, for cousins to get married? Or everybody, every one of them, you know, no, absolutely not. And I asked them why, and not a single one could give me a good reason. And this goes all the way back to ancient philosophy with the skeptics. And they would give an example. They make a distinction between something called nomos and something called physis, something that occurs in nature and something that occurs by convention. And the example given were a group of, it was a story of, written, I think, by a Middle Eastern author, but of some Romans and some Indians uh, meet together, and there's a king, and he asks the Romans, what would they be willing to do to eat the dead bodies of their parents? And the Romans say, absolutely nothing. We would rather die than, than do anything like this. It was completely considered sacrilege. And then they asked the Indians, what would you be willing to do? And I mean India, not Native Americans. What would you be willing to do? What would you take or what would it take for you to burn the bodies of your deceased? And they said they were absolutely, absolutely would never do this. But the thing is, of course, this is what the Romans did. And this is what these people did. They would eat their dead and it was totally normal to them. Of course, we all have reactions to this. So the question, what this goes back to then, is values. Where do we get our values? Why do we believe the things that we believe? Where do we derive them from? And I think this is the biggest question and why we're in this, this time in our culture where we're all struggling to find truth and trying to find the right way is there is nothing in our government, which I think we're all pretty happy about, but the reality is, is in our constitution, there's no list of values. There's no list of a source of values. The closest thing we have is life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, and the Declaration of Independence. That's not even the operating document for our country. And we all agree with these things, and we don't even question them. There's many people in the world who do. Look at some of the countries in the Middle East. Is everybody equal in the Middle East? Can you have a Christian church in Saudi Arabia? Can women drive in Saudi Arabia or vote? How are homosexuals treated in these African countries or in the Middle East, right? So I think this is a big question about values. Where do we get our values? Now we go to this football coach. This man decides he wants, what if he had gone out there and, and did a little ring around the rosy pocket full of posies dance every time before the game and somebody found that offensive? Why is it that because he says a prayer, now if he's forcing people to pray, there's something wrong with that. If people are, are relegated or treated differently because they don't want to participate in that, there's something wrong with that. But why not, can we not just get along with one another and say, look, this man wants to have a prayer and some people want to go out there and pray with him? Is that really hurting anybody or hurting someone's feelings? Can, can people be free to tolerate one another? Tolerance goes both ways. What difference does it make if it's a prayer or a song or a silly dance or whatever it is? Why is it particularly religion or particularly saying a prayer get somebody fired? Is that a tolerant society? It's, it's an interesting question. I have something yeah, I want jump to Jump in, there. please. I'll tell you, it offends my sensibility because it's exhibitionistic piety. It's full, fake piety. 
They're doing it to be seen. And isn't that something in the Bible that said you should be private? You should be, you should be restrained. You should be private in your worship. And, and this is what, why I hate my cousins. I have a bunch of cousins. I hate them. They are really repugnant human beings. They're, they're Texans for one. And two, and, and, and t- no, you can laugh, but this is, so they, my grandmother dies and these pious people come in and they go through her house like locusts and they just, and then they have a prayer session. And I'm going, are you kidding me? That's what gives it the bad name. I think it's great that people pray. I think it's great that people meditate. I think it's great that people call out Allah three times a day. I think it's great that people read. I think it's great that they listen to music. But when you're doing it to make a point, and they were doing it to make a point, it's not religion. That's not religion. That's not Christian. And that's not decent. It's indecent. Well, Terry, I don't enjoy the same window apparently you have into the conscience of this person, whether he was doing it for <laughs> exhibitionist reasons well, not. or not. I don't know. I don't know if he was, and he may have. But the question is, I don't have a right to tell him he can't do it or that he shouldn't do it. I would like to see what would happen if we told a Muslim who's part of a, a devout Muslim who prays every day and gets out a prayer rug and faces east and that he can't do that anymore. When that's a big, that's a major fundamental part. You are right that Jesus did say that when you pray, go into your, to your closet, go into your inner room and pray in secret and the Father will see you. But if you understand that in, it's only in its isolation, you miss the rest of it too, where Jesus went to the temple. That yep, there's on a, liturgy, a football that field, a football field. You don't have to what like it. What does that it? say about the attention like of God or Jesus? And you don't have to like it. I don't, I don't, I don't particularly, I'm not exactly, I don't think it matters. I don't think it's going to make them win or lose. So, but I don't have a problem with them praying. It doesn't bother. If they want to do that, why do I need to intervene and tell them what they can't do? You know, I'm with you. I don't really care. I just find it, I find it tasteless. I find it kicky. I find it. I, I'm, I just, I, I, it just offends, it offends my sense of decency because I think they're not doing it. For, I, I just, it looks like, it gives Christianity a bad name, really. I, no, I'm really glad to hear you say this because I think part of the challenge that we face in our culture is the difference between what should one have a right to do and what is kind of good manners or good etiquette. And in a sense, what you're saying is, man, maybe someone has a right to do that. But it's not necessarily in the best taste. Yeah, at that's times. you know what? That's why I hate it when people slobber all over each other in public too. You know, I mean, I had friends that they were kind of they were just just chew each other's lips, and I'm going, oh please, you know, <laughs> just because you can, don't, you know. <laughs> ugh. I'm sure you would agree here that we have to be careful, though, about where we draw lines here, because we don't want to exclude the Martin Luther Kings of the world from having a public voice, even though they are ministers. And though I think your point about private worship and, and praying in private is, is well taken, I, I want to be sure that MLK and people like him are out able to participate in public life in the way that he did. All right, we're going to get a question for the audience in just a second, but I want to ask you one real quick. Recently, in the state of Oregon, there were a couple, a married couple, um, who owned a bakery who ended up getting fined $150,000 because they would not bake a cake for a lesbian couple's wedding celebration. Is that appropriate? Is that the, is that what we want to do to those who object to and, and don't 
um, want to participate in something of that kind? Well, you know what? <laughs> and I, I guess here, let me, let me ask you this. Do you feel any tension on this question between your LGBT identity and your artistic identity? No. You know, no. Because, I, look, and Mickey Faust, how would you like it if I kept saying, well, you're a Republican, get the hell out. You know, or, or uh, I can tell you're not gay, get the hell out. Or I'm not going to serve you. We're not going to perform for you. These people had a business. If they wanted to go into a private business, that's one thing. But again, how tacky. You know, I mean, how tacky. And also, uh, they're giving religion a really bad name. What does it hurt them to put two brides on a cake? You know, really, does that really offend their sensibilities so much? You talk about people being PC and how, you know, twittery the liberals are. And I'm thinking that those people are a hell of a lot worse. You know, so, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't have any patience with that. That's just indulgence yeah. on their part. Okay, so, so Can I answer that question? Yeah, yeah, jump in, please. What, 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 what did you say, sweetie? Oh, when I, I wanted to answer. <laughs> well, I, I have a question for you, Terry. I do have a question. I, th- I do think there's something different about what happened there and you kicking someone out of your play for being a Republican or someone who disagrees with you. That's very different. And I'll tell you why. We had a, a deanery meeting, which is a group of priests in our area that met together recently. This is a couple months ago. And one of them, it was his birthday. His name's Father Bernie Jakubogo or something. I don't know how to his name. It's a strange name, Eastern European. And it was his birthday. And so a couple of the priests got together and they went out and got him a cake. And they said, please write on there, happy birthday, Father Bernie Jabuko, whatever his name is, 72 years. And we brought it out for him. And he said, oh, this is great. You know, thank you so much. And well, they even spelled my name right. Okay, I can't even say his name right. But they laughed and they said, "You know what? They, we're sorry that Father's not written on there, but the the lady who works at the bakery didn't want to write Father because she's a Southern Baptist, and it's and her faith says that Jesus, you know, Jesus says that call no man Father, and she she refused to put Father on there. And I jokingly said, "Well, then we should sue her, right?" Did you? No, of course not. Well, and the thing is this, I. We all, we all had a good laugh about it because we we understood. Look, this woman, I don't know who this person. I didn't meet her, but this woman's trying to to follow her faith, trying to follow her conscience to the best of her ability. If we really wanted Father written on the cake so bad, we can find someone else that's not going to do violence to her or try to. Or worse yet, I mean, one thing to say, hey, please, or here we'll give you an extra fifty or something, but to bring in the long arm of the law, the federal government, the Leviathan, to force her. To do something against their conscience, I think, goes against the very principles this country was founded on. Would, would you be okay, there's some African-American folks sitting at this table, if they were bakers, would it be okay to compel them to participate and bake and cater a Ku Klux Klan event? Would you, no, would you, you know, be okay having a play at your theater that celebrated you know, being homophobic and, and, and made, it wasn't accurate and depicted homosexuals in a way that's not accurate at all or disrespectful. Would you allow a, a play like that to go on? Participate in something that spreads, uh, that you don't agree with or you think is wrong? But Father, Tim, this is what really bugs me, okay? There is good and there is bad. And discriminating against people just because they're homosexual which you can't see, or discriminating against them, or refusing a service because you're making a political point. 
That's bad, well, you know, and, and there's a difference between the Ku Klux Klan is a terrorist organization. Everybody should be saying no to those creeps, you know, but why are we? So where, where do you draw the like line me? then? Why is it okay for this, this terrible person to discriminate against us? Why? Well, why does she, why does she triumph? Because she is a mistaken creep of a hick who doesn't understand and who has, uh, I don't know who's preaching to her, but they shouldn't be preaching. That's a wrong. That's wrong. Well, I don't know the lady, but my first off, I do. I think this is the case I've read about before. They didn't discriminate against homosexuals. In fact, I think that couple went to them repeatedly, and they had no problem getting service. It was requesting them to participate in an event that they didn't that didn't correspond to their conscience. I can imagine if I was, you know, like a photographer. My father's a photographer, and I met some photographers when I was in San Antonio uh, visiting him. And one of them told me they were Christians, and they they. They don't really want to participate and go there and take photos and use their creative gene to shoot homosexual weddings. Now, if I was a homosexual, I wouldn't want them shooting my wedding either because they're probably not going to do a very good job. But what's wrong with them just saying, you know what, I'm not really comfortable doing that. I don't really want to do that. Could you find someone else? I respect it. I love you. Good luck. You know, whatever. I'm not standing in the way of you doing what you want. I just really prefer not to participate. Can we be civil people? I don't think this is going to be solved by laws. I think it's going to be solved by us treating one another with love and care. And I, we have to be tolerant of one another, even when they disagree with us. And that's what I believe. You know, you might be right. But, uh, you know, you might be right. I, I, yeah. You might be right in that case. You might be right. It would I, be I wrong for me to, to force you to, to do a play at your theater that went against your conscience, that, that projected or showed some kind of, that portrayed homosexuals as all pedophiles. If you said, I don't want to do that, I'm not interested in that, it doesn't court, you know, I'm sorry, go find another theater to put that on. And I said, no, you know what, you're going to put it on because I'm going to go to the federal government and I'm going to get them in here. We're going to put this thing on and you're, or you're going to be fined out of business. I think that's wrong. You should be treated with more respect than that. You have a conscience and, and this country was founded on those liberties and I think that we should stand by it even when people disagree with us. All right, I, I want to I ask you, you mentioned the word conscience and I'm curious here. Several months ago, when the Pope was in town or in the country, he met with Kim Davis, the uh, Kentucky clerk of court who refused to sign uh, wedding certificates for gay couples on grounds of conscience. Are there any rules related to conscience that are different when you're talking about a government official rather than uh, a private citizen who is doing an act of civil disobedience. Sure, she's been employed by the federal government. She took an oath, according to the federal government. She can quit. You know, that was the, that was the solution. If she can't do her job, she should quit her job because part of her job is to uphold the federal law, and that was federal law. So okay. get the hell out. You know, go work in the bakery. <laughs> <laughs> I th I think that uh, the situation could have been handled a little bit differently. I, I do think that there is something different. Um, I think in her case it was different. But I think, you know, ultimately what happened, she was falling in the line of what civil disobedience, what it looks like. Martin Luther King, he told them, go out, break the law, get arrested. Because it's only then that people see that maybe there's something wrong here, that this woman, like, no matter what we think of her, I mean, she's not... You know, apparently she was married multiple times and so on. So it's not exactly she was the symbol or the bastion of like, you know, monogamy or something. But what happened there is being arrested kind of drew attention to it. And that's exactly what civil disobedience is supposed to be. Um, you're supposed to break the law on purpose and you're supposed to be punished on purpose to draw attention to it. But I do think there is a little bit of a difference. If you're a government official and you're an agent of the government, your agency is of the government, you have to 
do what the government says, and if you don't, you face the consequences. In this case, you're going to jail, which I think was a little excessive, but you should quit. Maybe you'll lose your job or something. That's Yeah, and that's the nature of it if you work for them. Absolutely. So, so Liz, we're, jump, yeah, jump we're in, back please. on the Question. foot. We're on the football field, and so I'm going to give you a, a few, a little bit of information about what people are wondering. So can the Muslim students that you're talking about publicly prey on the football field? And what would happen if they did? And before you answer that, more just commentary about the First Amendment of the Constitution. Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion. Praying is about religion. Religion and anything government paid for should be separate. So when that football coach, the public schools, um, should show no religious preference because that opens Pandora's box. If a coach can pray, what about someone from another religion? Should each and all of the many world religions not also have the right? How about Satanist? It could get out of hand to wit the Florida Capitol during the holidays. Yeah. Comment? That's a good point. Uh, it does get out of hand. It gets silly. Um, and I think the reason it gets silly, and I, maybe I'm going a little out, out of bounds here, but I, I look at what was going on in the Florida Capitol, and I find it very difficult to believe that there was a lot of real authentic religion being presented there. Um, I think it was a mockery and trying to make fun of and trying to do violence and maybe trying to make some sort of statement or whatever, and it did get ridiculous. And it starts to def- what difference does it make if there's a, a a crash scene in the Capitol or not? I don't know. Does anyone does anyone change their life from seeing something like that? I, I don't think so. I think we're better off focusing on who we are as human beings. Should the Muslims be allowed to pray on the football field? Of course, absolutely. Anybody should be allowed to. This is the United States of America. So if you're asking me from a legal, yeah, absolutely, they should be allowed. Why not? And if, yes, and if it got out of hand, we might say, all right, look, we got to stop doing this prayer business. Not because we're against prayer, but keep it to yourself because it's getting a little crazy. You got Festivus cans and you got whatever going on here, all right? (laughs) Help me understand when it comes, we're wrestling tonight with these founding ideals of equality and freedom, which I think we all have a great affection for and respect for. But we're we're dealing here with a lot of to- of situations where there are tensions, and so I'm curious to know, kind of, if you guys have any advice or overarching ideas for how to guide us in dealing with these things. Should we always fall down on the side of promoting freedom? Should we always fall down on the side of equality, or is there uh, some Solomonic sort of? solution to these sorts of tensions well i think i kind of go i touched on this earlier i don't think the founding fathers understood that they were doing this they they set this collision course up back in the 1780s when the constitution was written because you have this tension and we've seen it before right with amish people is trying to you know should they have to send their kids to public schools and their, their religious freedom and these sort of tensions that exist and i think we're seeing them again now um, and again, I don't, I don't see how they get solved by law because we live in a pluralistic society. You, you'd have to tie down certain specific values, and how do you go about doing that? Whether people like it or not, the founding values of this country, I mean, the philosophy of the founding fathers are deeply influenced by John Locke. And John Locke believed that these values of, of liberty and freedom and equality and all these things derived their authority from God. He was trying to form a philosophical and a religious basis for constitutional government. Now, the Founding Fathers didn't want to include a lot of specific Christian language. They wanted to make it very you know, open. But there was clear hints of this in the Declaration of Independence from people like Thomas Jefferson. If you read their writings, you see that this is... But I'm not saying that we advocate going back to those days. 
I'm just saying, this is the reality. These are the documents they set forth. And they put these things like values, like freedom and equality in these documents that we all adhere to unquestionably. No one really questions these values. But now we have this tension. How do we resolve it? I think, I don't know how do we do it uh, legally, but I think this is pretty good right here. Got civility and a flying pig. Got civility. Can we, can we tolerate one another? Why do we always have to go to these legal uh, ways of force and coercion? Can I, can I tolerate that you have different beliefs than I do? You know, can you tolerate that I do? Can we, can we be friends? I mean, that's, that's what community is. It's not going on the Facebook page of all the people who like the things I like or only reading the news of the people who have the views that I have. Community is, is that we are different people and we live here and we got to live together and we have to do that in a peaceful way and a way that respects each other as human beings. Okay, Liz, I, I just want to say one thing. I, I did not understand what those questions were, so I really couldn't address them. I, I, it's, it's okay. I, I don't have to answer everything. Yeah. So yeah, I, I'll, I'll go ahead and answer. You know, this. really more just on, on that football field, if the Muslim students are praying on the football field, is that okay? And, and just sort of the interplay between the First Amendment and, I mean, really, in, in so centrally, equality and freedom have a built-in tension. So, you know, I, I need to go back and read it again. But how about if I actually pitch another one your way? Okay. So, in 60 years of attending church, Catholic, Baptist, Evangelical, the only time 1 Corinthians was preached was at a wedding. I don't think Paul wrote his letter to Corinthians because there was a wedding in town. <laughs> he wrote it because they needed to hear it. Christians of all faiths need to hear Paul's letter now over and over again. Your thoughts, Father Tim? I'm assuming they mean the First Corinthians chapter 13, love oh, yeah, is patient, sorry, love 13. is kind. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, it does come up in our cycle of readings. I can't tell you exactly when, but there's a three-year cycle that we operate on. And I can tell you that it definitely comes up. Um, it is chosen very often for weddings because it's, you know, it's very nice to love and all this stuff and you know, people getting married and so on. It's very <laughs> nice. Um, I mean, you're right. Absolutely. It should be preached. I, I think... I feel like we try to, I try to preach these same messages, maybe not specifically from that letter. Like, I don't have control, like I said, over what letters read at mass. Unless it's a wedding, I can steer it that way. But it is, it is preached, I, I think. I mean, if, if she's saying, why don't we hear enough of this? I'm, if you're one of my parishioners, I'm sorry. I'll try to talk about it more. I have, a, I have a question for you, Terry, and, and it gets back to your identity in the tribe of people who love comedy. Are you at all worried with all of the kind of political correctness, and we're going to be devoting an entire session to this coming later this year, are you at all worried that with all the political correctness in our day, that humor is threatened? I mean, you know, Jerry Seinfeld apparently does not, no longer goes on college campuses because the students are so sensitive, and doesn't, doesn't humor require at times a freedom to offend or poke fun at and and yet we we don't want to violate someone else's standing in the community so help me understand are you at all concerned about the future of humor no (laughs) no no i'm not i i think the political correctness thing look that came about, it's, it's kind of like how people go crazy because they're trying to do right. And this whole political correctness thing is just people being crazy because they're trying to do right. Because they saw people, okay, I hate the humor that beats up on little people. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that's a whole lot of this kind of contemporary humor. It beats up on little people. It beats up on people who don't deserve it. 
Okay, and so I believe in beating up on the people who deserve it, who are usually the people in power and the people who are dismissive or the people who are smug or blah, blah, blah. Okay, I also believe that you should be able to say whatever the hell you want. But, you know, except I'll, I'll say one thing. The freedom of language, which of course is everyone saying fuck, 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 and I'm getting so sick of it. It's just like there's no other word in the language except that. And I'm going, what happened to real language? You know, it just got subsumed in an effort for everyone to be like Lenny Bruce or George Carlin. You know, that it went to the, the other direction because people were saying, no, 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 you can't do this. And the only way to be cool and the only way to be funny is to say a million horrible, you know, I mean, you know, a million curse words or something like that. I do all the time. I mean, you know, I've been quite restrained. But, but I... <laughs> But I think it's stupid. It's gotten to a point where it's stupid and it's boring and it's not interesting and there's something more. Okay, no, I'm not worried about political correctness. Yeah, but you know what your responsibility as a comedian to do? Go on the campus. You know, say these things. But again, it was because people were being called. How is it humor to call someone kike? How is it humor? Where's the humor in that? Once upon a time ago, it was humorous for people to get into blackface and to do this thing. Is this funny anymore? You know, it was funny to make jokes about beating your wife. I mean, is this funny anymore? So what we're trying to do is what's really funny? You know, what, what sustains itself is humor. You know, so I, there's always going to be something. There's always going to be something to be, to be made ridiculous. There will always be something to be, you know, to make fun of. And so now I, I don't have any. And as a matter of fact, I hope and I see the ascendancy of comedy in a lot of ways. Where, where comedy is this ironic eye that says, really? You know, really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, to, to deflate the pomposity. And to me, that's one of the most important things comedy does. It's what Shakespeare did. And all of the Shakespearean comedies you see, it's just like, prick that one and prick that one and prick that one and just as shallow. I mean, you know, you have these wonderful things. So, no, I, I'm not worried about it. It's going to be different. It will go through these evolution, uh, evolutions. You know, it's going to do it. But you know what? I'm watching Trainwreck, and I'm thinking, all this is about drinking and getting laid, and yet, in the end, she finds her true love, and it ends like every other conventional comedy. You know, and then I used to think, oh, Chris Rock, he's so terrible. I don't want my nep- nephew watching this because he's such a foul mouth little creep. And I watch it with my nephew, and we watch it, and he's the sweetest guy in the world. And it reminds me of when I was a kid and I read Malcolm X. You know, everyone's telling me, oh, Malcolm X, he's so terrible. And I read Malcolm X. He's the sweetest guy in the world. So, you know, you know. I'm, I'm curious, I want to get back to the whole, your identity in the, as the, in the vanguard of the weird community. And, and I'm curious, are you at all concerned that as gay rights becomes more and more mainstream, that your identity will be standing apart from mainstream culture will be compromised and and lessened? Or do you worry about be- becoming too mainstream? And, and I'm curious to know as well, Father, do you f- fear that the Catholic Church and others who hold to its tenets are, are becoming, in a certain sense, the new weird? And... 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 <laughs> and, 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 and a countercultural force rather than part of mainstream um, yeah, and actually, culture. Can, I, can I tag on kind of an amalgam of some questions that I've got here? When we're weighing issues of equality and freedom and where they strain against each other, is some of it related to how much one 
issue is in the majority versus minority. How much of what we're talking about is what is the predominant thinking versus what is the minority thinking? And does it shift if you're on the other side? Well, I hear, you know, we talk about settled law. You've heard this before. People who are considered liberal and pro-choice, for example, would say, well, this Roe v. Wade is settled law. It's done. Stop fighting. Stop talking about it. But maybe uh, those same people on the left would also say that Supreme Court's, uh, in fact, someone just told me, shared with me today, the Supreme Court apparently just issued a ruling against uh, the death penalty. Okay. Well, some people say, well, that's settled law too. And, and let's not, you know, let's not talk about that anymore. So what, if it's, if it's the law and if it's the majority and if it's might makes right, then what are we doing having this conversation? There's nothing to talk about. It's just whoever happens to be stronger. And then in that case, there was nothing wrong with what the Nazis did because everything they did was legal, right? There's nothing wrong with when countries do things by the majority or by the power. We don't believe that, right? And so it's not just because it's enshrined in law. We, we hope that the law enshrines and reflects our values. We hope that. But we also recognize, as Dr. Martin Luther King did in his letter, the Supreme Court was wrong. Plessy versus Ferguson was wrong. Separate but equal was wrong. We don't just abide by the law. Where do values come from? It's not just the law. And am I worried that we're becoming the weird? I mean, look at, look at how I'm dressed, folks. It's kind of weird. <laughs> yes, in some way, I do. I, what I do worry about, um, to be honest, is I'm not so worried about the government forcing us to do weddings or things like that that, that, we, that don't correspond to our beliefs. So I'm more worried about the future of Catholic education. There's a lot of things that the Catholic Church does that's been very good and very helpful to this world. They're the largest charitable organization in the world adoptive services that they had in different states. They put hundreds and thousands of kids in, in foster care and found homes for them and so on. They're no longer allowed to do that because of, the, of this, this issue with the homosexual stuff. I don't see how forcing them to go out of business or stopping them helps any children anywhere. How did that help anybody? Couldn't we have another service that did that and service that kind of... I mean, why? It just seems strange to me. I do worry about the hospitals, what they're being forced to do, Catholic businesses and so on, what they're being forced to do and asked to do. And I worry about my school. I worry about John Paul II Catholic High School and Trinity Catholic School. Is the day going to come in 10, 20 years when people will not tolerate us and will no longer send their kids or force us to shut our doors down or something because we can't teach our kids these values anymore? I do worry about that. If the majority is what makes it right and that's how we're looking at things, that's something for me to be concerned about. But this has been going on for 2,000 years, and so it's not anything new to us, and we'll be okay. There's many people who've said that the Catholic Church is finished, it's over, and we've buried all of them. <laughs> We're still here. I'm curious about your sense of where things are going and, and your comfort level with it. And, and, and the reason I ask this is that within the LGBT community, there are some who very much want to become part of the mainstream, there are others that have have enjoyed being a kind of countercultural force. And so I'm curious to know where you fall in that and kind of what your sense of where we're going is. I was a queer who enjoyed living in sin. It was fun. And I had no objection to that. But I also love the woman who became my wife. I love her. And, and our culture says, marry, marry, marry. And we weren't really that interested in marrying. And when we did marry, we married almost as a joke because we could. And, but then there were also, we married also because of benefits that married couples get. But I'll tell you another thing. What is marriage signifying now? I mean, what is that? We were together for 30, almost 30 years before marrying. 
So that's devotion, isn't it? That's love. That's, you know, that's all the things that marriage is supposed to be celebrating, isn't it? So, yeah, there are. But, you know, there are people in the straight, look, look, there are straight people who have affairs and, you know, are having threesomes and foursomes and doing all of these kinds of things. Why don't people pick on them? You know, why is it always poor little gays who always get the <laughs> spotlight put on them because of their sexual practices? I think, you know, enough. But this is the thing, you know, why can't we err on the side of inclusion? Why do the teachings have to be against women or against including women, including gays? Why? You know, I, I understand if it's including, if it's against including really morally repugnant people, people who murder, you know, people who do mean harm, you know, people who are preaching truly, truly what you would say, godless, <laughs> you know, doctrine. But I'm telling you, the majority of the people I know um, all of the, most of the uh, there are some repellent people in the LGBT, B, BT, LGBT, god damn it, I can't even do the initials anymore. <laughs> Look, there are repugnant people all over the place. But, but why are we assuming? But what gets me is that the churches assume that because we are gay, we are repugnant people. You know, that we, we don't deserve to be included. And it's the same thing with women. You know, why aren't women, why don't we have women priests? Why, why don't we have these things? Why are we always deciding on, on exclusion, on no, 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 no? And that's what it seems like to me. Can, and the federal government, I want to say, you know, if the federal government gives you money, then that's fine. Give the money back and go and do what you want. Just don't take money from the rest of us. You know, I think that and for all of the schools and all of the kinds of things, don't take federal money. Don't take federal money. Do your own thing. Go up to Oregon and get your guns. But don't do it on federal land that you are trying to claim as your own because that land belongs to the rest of us. It doesn't belong to just you. And so that's what my objection, my big objection, is that isn't God love? And isn't the thing of Christianity was always love, love, love? That's what my mother was trying to tell me when my cousins were trying to tell me that God was going to send me to hell because I was gay, and God was going to send my mother to hell because she wasn't a believer. And my mother was trying to tell me, love. And she would look at all these different people, love. Which is the better? Uh, Father, I think, I'm I think we do. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Well, I, I brought something. Just to, I wanted to just clarify something. Because I thought this might come up, and I just want to be clear. This is just straight out of the catechism, and there really isn't anything higher than the catechism when it comes to the Catholic Church. And this is about homosexualities, and it says here, they must be accepted with respect, compassion, and sensitivity. Every sign of unjust discrimination in their regard should be avoided. That's the official teaching of the Catholic Church. The thing about transgender, the transgender community in which the Catholic Church came out and just flatly condemned it. And so there's no room for transgender. There's a man, there's a woman, there's no gender fluidity. Ooh. We're going to probably need to save that topic yeah. for our next uh, <laughs> discussion because we're running out of time. But I do want to, I, I do want to take off my moderator hat just for a second, answer or tr attempt to answer. And I'm going to, I'm going to look for you for confirmation on this, Father Tim. On the question of women's ordination in the Catholic Church, here's what I think is... Or the Episcopal Church, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, so he, here's what I think is going on. And tell me if I'm wrong about this, Father. I think that before the foundation of the world, God was planning, and he looked ahead, and he saw that there was going to be these worship services where the person that is performing the service, who's guiding it, 
ultimately is going to be serving a meal. Is communion pretty much kind of the highlight of the worship service, yeah? So basically, your role, if I'm not mistaken, is largely food preparation and food service, yeah? (laughs) And so I think God said, okay, if I put this out there and open it up to anyone, I think we all know who's going to end up doing the food preparation and food service, right? So what I'll do is I'll put the men in charge and I'll tell them that this is really, really important. And the women will then be served by the men. Now, is that more or less? I mean, it's all in my mind a kind of divine joke. And the thing that, the thing that, Kind of makes perfect sense. The thing that's really curious to me is I think you guys are in on the joke. You got it. You figured it out. And I think that you're up there saying, well, this is just like Jesus, who came not to be served, but to serve, even though those he was serving were less power. I, I don't know. Anyway, that's a silly and um, inappropriate way for us to conclude our evening. But we're running out of time. We're going to let them, yeah, exchange uh, shoes. Let me just say, if you enjoyed this evening and would like more of this, one of the things that I got a commitment from them, each of our panelists today, uh, today for before they took part in this, is I said, after this is all over, I'd like to have you guys over to my house for dinner. And my table sits, I don't know, 10, 12 so we've got three of us. If any of you would enjoy participating in a continuation of this discussion, please let us know if you belong to one of their tribes or if you're someone like me who's not a part of their tribe but loves interacting um, with them. And we'll have, I think, a really fun dinner party. We're going to be doing more and more of this as the Village Square, having what are called Jeffersonian dinners, where in private homes around town we'll have good conversation, usually about one topic that everyone simultaneously takes part in over a meal. With that, I would ask you to please join me in thanking our guests for their participation. Hi again, it's Vanessa here, your podcast host. I hope this program with Terry Galloway and Father Tim Holita perhaps helped you consider another perspective. It did for me, for sure. And so I'm very thankful to Tim and Terry, and also Bill Maddox for helping to expand my understanding of these important issues. You know, these sometimes competing principles of equality and freedom have been on my mind a lot lately. And so I personally Love, love, love Liz's warning at the beginning about team equality and team freedom. When I heard her say that, I just wanted to yell out, both, I want to be on both teams. But I also know why we needed that warning, because that's what's happening in the world around us. It's the us versus them. We have two choices. One is wrong and bad while the other is right and good. And it feels like just about everything happening around us is positioned this way. So here I am rejecting that view. 
I'm rejecting those binary choices in the face of a world that is desperately trying to make us choose and put us in a box with our team. And to prove my rejection to you, I'd like to share how I think both the left and the right have taken their team too far in the extreme directions. So I'll give you an example about each side. To the left, let's talk about equality versus equity. I feel like there's this seemingly new narrative about how our goal should be equity. Equality isn't even enough anymore. And let me say, I do understand and agree that the circumstances that factor into where someone's starting point is should definitely be considered. That's why I had an affirmative action debate with my husband 20 years ago on our first date. But I don't think we should go as far as saying that the end result of equity is the goal because equity doesn't take into account the inputs or the efforts along the way. One of our favorite social psychologists, Dr. Jonathan Haidt, explores this in The Coddling of the American Mind, how good intentions and bad ideas are setting up a generation for failure. Such a great read, you guys. You should really check it out. Anyway, he shares a really interesting perspective on that and a lot of research on the topic that helped me to think differently and more broadly about this issue. All right, now to the right. Masks. With freedom comes responsibility. And Lord knows that the brave soldiers who fight for our freedom have had to wear much more than masks, many of whom didn't have a choice as they were drafted into the armed services to protect our country, our freedom. And so here we are, when the research about the effectiveness of masks is so clear, and when it shows that a huge reason to wear a mask is to not pass on something that we don't know we have yet, and when we can do something to protect our neighbor, our classmate, our coworker. So what is the big pushback in the name of freedom? So I offer these thoughts to you, not to dig in on a perspective that might be different than yours, but rather to say that here I am trying to be on both team equality and team freedom and recognizing that this pull towards the extremes often prevents us from thinking rationally and being balanced. I know I have my own blind spots, so there are probably many issues where you can call me out. And please do, by the way, I'm here to listen and grow along with you. Find us on Facebook at The Village Square or on Twitter at Village Square US or there's a contact link at the bottom of our website at villagesquare.us. So please engage with us if you'd like to offer another view on something I've said or share your thoughts about this program. I am literally on the edge of my seat waiting to hear from you. All right, before we close out today, we'd like to give a big shout out to some Village Square fans who helped to make these programs possible. Thank you to Bob Barrett, Brian Deloge, Wellington Meffert and Carrie Roth, Greg Patterson, Almina and Brooks Pettit, 
Monique Richardson, and Josh Zellman. And of course, let's hear it again for Florida Humanities for partnering with us to present this podcast series, Created Equal and Breathing Free. We couldn't do this without the generous support from all of you. Subscribe to Village Squarecast wherever you listen to podcasts so you'll see the fantastic lineup of programs we have planned for you coming out every other week. To stay up to date with all that's happening with the Village Square, subscribe to our newsletter at villagesquare.us. We appreciate you listening to Created Equal and Breathing Free. Until next time, we challenge you to reach out with an open heart and mind to someone who doesn't look or think like you. It changes everything. We'll talk to you soon, and thank you so much for listening to Village Squarecast. Cast.